Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. Uh, hello. You're allowed to talk, so? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's lovely to be together. It's such a joy and a privilege in these uh, strange times. Uh, we're starting a new series about Jesus in our secular age, and we're going to think today about community, next week about meaning, and then the third week about hope. But I'm going to pray, and wherever you are with God, I'd love you to bow your heads and uh, just ask for God's help today. Oh dear God, we thank you that we can gather like this, uh, but Father, we pray your mercy uh, in other parts of Sydney uh, and New South Wales and Victoria and this desperate world. But Father, now we thank you uh, that as we wrestle with uh, how to make sense of all that's going on in our world and of all our longings for things like community, please would you help us to see Jesus afresh and how he might give us that hope. And we ask in his name. Amen. When the plague spread through England between 1348 and 1350, the Church of England at the time called for intense prayer and fasting. Australia 2020, COVID has led millions to turn to JobKeeper, but perhaps far fewer to become God-seekers. Why is that? What's gone on in our mental frameworks? Even for Christians, do we pray and mean, give us today our daily bread, we did before in the Lord's Prayer, or do we just kind of fall into assuming that actually our daily bread's always going to be there down the road at Coles? It's very easy, isn't it? Now, in many ways, we live in a secular age where we kind of see the world through a secular frame. And if you think about a photo frame, it's not that there's nothing outside, but it focuses our attention. And our, the mindset that we kind of have so much in our secular world today focuses our attention on what the here and now, what's tangible, what's material, what's immediate. Now, I, I seem to do a little bit of uh, definitions before we kind of charge on. There is a very hard secularism, okay? There's a hard secularism that's quite hostile to God and to Christian belief or religion in general that denies that there is anything beyond or transcendent what we can see and touch. And there's a story that hard secularism tells, and you will have heard this. It goes something like, um, humans used to believe in God uh, back when we didn't really understand how the world worked. But now that we've got this uh, scientific understanding of the world, if you just kind of, we can just subtract all of that silly, superstitious belief, and then what you're left with is neutral, pure, rational atheism. No need to believe in God. Now, that kind of secular hypothesis that, you know, the world is steadily becoming uh, less religious as we kind of increase our understanding, you'll hear that kind of overstated, I think, by at times secularists and by Christians, interestingly. And probably it's better to say, I mean, it's interesting, um, the Australian poet Les Murray, who died last year, he said that Australia is still roughly Christian, <laughs> There's so many Christian values that are still part of the fabric of our thinking. Or I read a report um, from, I think, about two months ago in London, which is often seen as being inner-city secular, that actually turns out inner-city London is far more conservative and religious than the rest of the United Kingdom. And the demographers who do the research say that over the next 50 years, the world is likely to become more religious, not less. So it's kind of overplayed, right? But actually, what we're going to talk about most of the time in the next few weeks is, is a soft secularism that doesn't uh, that's not kind of hostile necessarily um, to god and christian belief it just kind of says you know what 
even if God does exist, God's just not that relevant to the daily business of life. You can kind of just go through the week without even thinking about God. And that secular frame means that even for Christians, uh, here's a quote for you, um, this is going to come up on the screen, even for Christians, it is possible, and you know what, indeed normal and expedient to go about our daily business in the world without giving much thought to God. Right? That's the secular kind of frame, that's the assumption of so much of our culture and thinking. And in this kind of frame, God it might get like a support role. I mean, maybe Jesus can help me to live my best life now. So I'll kind of opt in to the Jesus thing. And so here's the thing, right? Most secularism sounds fairly neutral. We're just kind of trying to take religion out of the equation. It's not hostile to Christianity. It's just indifferent. But that's the kicker. Because in the end, even that soft secularism isn't just a kind of subtraction and then we get back to neutral. No, it's actually a whole other vision of life. It's an alternative. Our secular age is inviting us and asking us to assume and believe that whatever God might be there is either impersonal or indifferent to us. So you know what? You may as well just kind of get on with life and may as well ignore whatever God there is, he, she, it. And so instead, if there's no God who's actually great enough and worthy enough and wonderful enough to kind of put at the centre of the universe, well, actually, we'll just put ourselves at the centre of the universe. And so that's why one of the default beliefs in our secular age is the freedom of the individual. Okay, so everything from kids' movies, let it go, don't let anyone hold you back, you know, you can, there you go, you can sing it, not out loud, but you can sing it to yourself. Um, To all those slogans that you see at protests, they're all about individual choice and freedom. Um, you, You can do anything and you can be anything Just believe in yourself. Uh, Don't let anyone judge you. Be your authentic self. You do you. I've got rights. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. In fact, the only way to kind of be your authentic self is to actually follow your desires and uh, and give in to them. Now, uh, philosopher Charles Taylor kind of calls this secular mindset self-sufficient humanism. Okay, that's kind of the way he kind of wraps it up. And I know we got a little bit intellectual today, but this is what's going on in our world. You've got to understand it, right? Self-sufficient humanism. So the fascinating thing is, even in the pandemic, many of us, Christian or not, are less likely to pray than to turn to our own resources or to the government, who sometimes is now expected to fulfil the role that God used to in kind of Western culture. Now, there's a lot that's really great and appealing about this kind of secular way of doing life, right? Um, The freedom of the individual, that's a Christian value in some ways. Um, The technological kind of possibilities that are open to us is kind of wonderful and mind-blowing. But the catch is self-sufficient humanism has its own cost. And for as many believers who might have moments where you doubt if God really does make a difference to daily life, there are as many secular people wondering if surely there must be more to life than just me and this little moment, surely. So for one, in 2019, uh, there was a study last year uh, that said that one in two Australians feel lonely at least once a week. And recent studies have said it's all worse since COVID. 
So here's our remarkable, technological, connected, secular age, and we are craving real community with this epidemic of loneliness. And actually, COVID has reminded us how interdependent and non-self-sufficient we really are. Um, The global supply chain, right, that is a phenomenal human achievement until it fails. Very quickly, wasn't it? A few days. And maybe for the first time, there was no daily bread at Coles in March for a few days when the shelves were all empty. And um, actually, Riggers, just throw that bag to me. That'll do. Got a, got a prop here today. You, uh, you know when it was all going crazy and uh, people were off to Bunnings and I, um, I bought some veggies and I planted and after four months, <laughs> this is the grand total of our veggie garden. Uh, four kind of sad looking stalks. The snails were very happy, uh, but the Rogers family is doomed uh, if that's what we have to rely on. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? It's, I think this has remind us just we are so interdependent despite our kind of cries for kind of, you know, individual choice. And, and then recently, the actions of a few security guards pursuing their own individual desires and freedom have affected a whole nation. And then on the other hand of politics, perhaps, I saw a tweet that said, I will not wear a mask, I will not pay a fine, I'm a proud Australian, I'm born free. Now, if you're uncomfortable with either of those, and kind of wherever you stand on politics, left, right, conservative, progressive, you just got to realise, whoever you are, this is what our culture has been telling us this whole time. I'm free to do what I want and to be what I want and to follow my desires and to express my authentic self and no one has a right to tell me otherwise. But this kind of self-sufficient individualism was only ever a fantasy. And this self-asserting individualism is leaving us lonely. Now, the social commentators have kind of uh, noticed all of this. And uh, for decades, people have been advocating for community. Uh, So, for example, um, uh, Robert Putnam in 1995 uh, wrote a famous essay called Bowling Alone. He was talking about America. People used to go um, 10 bowling in leagues. Now everyone just goes alone. And he lamented the loss of what he called social capital. Um, The Canadian author Craig Gay uh, wrote these words. Uh, I think we've got this quote on the screen. He said, The problem of destructive individualism has subsequently led many contemporary observers to emphasise the importance of community and to contend for a return to communitarian values. Right? That, yes, here's the catch. Yet, it is important to stress that the contemporary impotence with respect to commitment cannot itself be remedied by the simple decision to re-establish community. For community already presupposes the capacity of individuals to make lasting commitments. And this capacity is precisely what contemporary loose individuals lack. And what what he means and what he's quoting is another author who's talking about that you can't build and get community if you always want to sit free and loose from commitment. All those kind of commitments that have held Western culture together, um, families and marriages and uh, jobs and nations uh, and the church and a sense of moral responsibility and all of that. Francois Sagan was a playwright, a French playwright who died in 2004. And she was interviewed towards the end of her life. And the interviewer asked her 
what was your greatest goal in life? And she answered, my greatest goal in life was freedom. The interviewer followed up, did you achieve your goal? Francoise Sagan answered, well, you can't be free when you're in love. But fortunately, you're not always in love. Fascinating. If you want to experience genuine love, um, romantic uh, love, uh, the commitment of marriage, um, friendship, community, what churches are meant to be, you have to give up some level of that self-asserting individual freedom to do whatever you want. Or you'll never ever get that community that we're all longing for and need. You can't just change the branding, whack on a new slogan and just kind of get instant community. It just doesn't work. Community grows out of rootedness, not transience. It grows out of going all in, not sitting loose. But, but this individualised personal freedom is what secularism has been training us in all our lives. And if you're a Christian parent here today, your children are being raised on this stuff. So here's the thing. The community we need needs something different and deeper than anything that our secular individual philosophy can offer us. The Good Samaritan is a vision of care and compassion and community. That's entered Western vocabulary. We talk about the Good Samaritan. Uh, It's the community that we long for and that God's designed us for. Jesus tells this parable about a half-dead man lying in a ditch, a victim of violence. He cannot help himself and he's ignored by the representatives of religion. Now, self-sufficient secularism might say to him, well, you just need to believe in yourself and get yourself out of the ditch. Or maybe, uh, look, it was his own individual choice to go down the Jericho Road and he should have to live with the consequences. But Jesus paints a picture of compassion, someone who goes past and who, at risk to self, tends the wounds of this half-dead man, uh, carries him on his um, animal and then provides for him until he's well again, and all from one of those despised Samaritans in the first century. But it's critical to notice why Jesus tells this famous parable, right? That's why we had that whole reading, because you've got to rewind. There's, There's a man who comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus repeats the standard answer in first century Judaism and the Old Testament Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, not put off by the fact that just possibly and maybe he may not have always loved God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength, he just leaves that aside and says, can we talk about the second one and actually can we just scope that down a bit? Who is my neighbour? I don't want to be you know, too big here. And then Jesus' parable really opens the floodgates, actually, doesn't it? This vision of actually loving any neighbour who God brings across your path at cost. So just try and imagine um, that, that, that man at the dinner table conversation that night. Oh, gosh, I had the strangest conversation with that Jesus guy today, the one who's doing the rounds. We were, we were talking about, you know, loving your neighbour and what it means, and he said, you know, you've actually got to love everyone. And actually, that sort of love just seems too much and too hard and beyond any of us. And do you know what else he said? He said, that's what you've got to do to get eternal life, which means, oh man, I've got no hope of saving myself. 
There was a Harvard study in March this year that said, uh, that concluded that people who are involved in religious participation weekly have far better health outcomes and live longer. The, uh, the researchers kind of concluded by saying, we don't know why. Now, the secularists might kind of respond and say, well, look, there's something about getting together with other kind of people and having some of that human connection. And, and, and there's, a, there's something there, isn't there? Except it's not just about getting together at the tennis club or at the secular church that started in Sydney uh, you know, six or seven years ago and has now shut down. There's actually something about the Christian message that actually gets you the community. And so really, friends, here's the point today. The community that we need grows out of the love of Jesus we don't deserve. The community that we need grows out of the love of Jesus we don't deserve. Because if you're a Christian, what you believe is actually that you were helpless and you were spiritually dead and you were not sufficient to save yourself. And even though it was your and my own bad choice to go our own way without God, and even though your best efforts are clouded with self-righteousness and virtual signaling and all the rest, still Jesus Christ saved you by grace. That is, a love you did not deserve. And because he saved you by grace, there, no matter what you do, God's still going to love you. He's still going to love you. And in fact, in order to love you and rescue you, when neither religion... Jesus makes that clear in the parable, or your best or mine could save us. Jesus Christ came and he's the one who bled and he's the one who died in your place and mine, the victim of the sin of others, not his, but yours and mine and the whole world. And so it's actually more than that, even because Jesus loves you, he's got a plan for you, even if you can't see it, and he's going to look after you. And so you don't need to keep protecting yourself or focusing on yourself or bolstering your self-image through kind of um, all all those self-righteous things we so easily do. And then you're free to give yourself to that community and those relationships we need because you've experienced a love you did not deserve. Francois Sagan was kind of only half right. The love of Jesus you don't deserve, that is actually the path to freedom, free from that bent to self in the name of freedom, free to love others even if it costs us. And actually, secularism keeps tempting us to kind of live life without reference to God. Well, friends, can I encourage you, the more you live day-to-day life with reference to the love of Jesus, the more you and I will experience the community that we desperately need. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that uh, though so easily we go through our weeks with such little reference to you, that we go our own way thinking that we know better than you. We thank you that the good news of the gospel of Jesus tells us that you loved us when we didn't deserve it. And Heavenly Father, I pray for each of uh, my friends here today that wherever we are with you, that you'll please help us to know in our heart of hearts the love that you have shown us that we didn't deserve so that we would keep giving ourselves and then enjoy the community that we desperately need. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about St Luke's Anglican Church, please visit 
www.clovelly.org.au.